This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Cassian Cross Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of CassianCross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is episode 202, and we are getting back into a conversation about conservation. Conversation about conservation. And before I get to that, a few notes. First of all, thank you for all of the emails and comments and everything I got on the heels of not only my 200th episode, but also my most recent episode, which is another accusation, a listener feedback episode. Uh, it's interesting. I feel like I always get lots of emails and comments immediately on the heels of those. And if that is indeed when you want to reach out, that's fantastic. Um, and sometimes I pocket those and save them for uh, 10 episodes in the future. Uh, but I always try to get back to people. So again, thanks for reaching out, questions, comments, and just little notes. I do appreciate it. Secondly, I'm aware there's still an audio issue with the hosting of this podcast. I'm trying to get it hammered out with the folks that run that side of things. It sounds great uh, to my ears uh, when I send it out. Um, and then something between uh, sending it out and getting it to your earbuds or mine when I go back to do quality control, uh, something is just not quite right. And there's various degrees of it being a little bit squirrely, but I am aware and I am I'm sorry. I apologize. It is not the kind of product I want to put out. So especially I feel like Apple Podcasts really struggles, and that's my preferred way to listen to podcasts. So if you're in that boat, know that I am aware of the problem. And like I said, we'll try to get it figured out. But again, today I said I was going to talk about conversations about conservation. And I'm going to stop using those two words in close proximity with one another because it's just not going to go well. I actually have a podcast that was called Conservation Conversations. 
And uh, I think I made quite a few errors there. But today we're going to use a similarly alliterative title, and that is Concentric Circles of Conservation. Concentric Circles of Conservation. And hopefully what I have to share, what we have to talk about today is incredibly practical. And it is something that is going to be helpful to you as you consider your role, not just locally, uh, not just regionally, but also globally uh, when it comes to conservation. Because I, as I've said before, and as much smarter people have said long before I've even started talking about fly fishing or started fly fishing, I think we have a responsibility if we use the resource in a special way, we have a responsibility to steward that resource in a special way. I believe that every one of us has an innate uh, uh, God-given responsibility to steward our resources. Um, as if you know, because you've been listening to the podcast for any period of time, I am a Christian and I believe that the world was created and I don't think that gives me a pass because it's going to not be around forever. I think that that adds an extra level of stewardship. So if you kind of have had that perspective or you've seen before this idea that uh, people who believe in the Bible don't care about the natural world, then that is their fault and that is their problem because that's certainly not what we even hear in the first three chapters of reading scripture. Well, I'm not here to give a sermon, but what I want to communicate is that I think that no matter which angle you're coming from, if you're coming from a completely atheistic, secular, humanistic uh, perspective or a reformed Bible believing perspective like I am, then uh, I think that we have a significant responsibility to take care of our natural world, period, baseline. But then again, you go over and above that. And if you are using the resource on a, at a significant level, so that means if you own a logging company, that means if you have a large piece of property that you farm, that means if you hike, hunt, camp, fish, stargaze, birdwatch, whatever it might be, then I think that because we are using it, we are in it, we are impacting it in some small way, which impacting isn't bad. I, I, I don't subscribe to the idea that any impact is bad, that simply by being in the woods, we are negatively uh, affecting the woods. I think that we are supposed to be in the woods. The woods were created for us to be out in there. Um, but if we are having any sort of impact, then we ought to steward it in some way that goes over and above just making sure we are not detrimental to it, that we're not damaging it. So, so much of fly fishing in, in the fly fishing culture is wrapped up in that. I mean, you can't swing a dead cat online without running into something about uh, Bristol Bay, uh, Pebble Mine, uh, the, the Everglades. Um, you can't uh, see any, you know, you can't go that long without seeing something about dams in the Pacific Northwest, about uh, logging practices and, um, and mining in the Appalachians. Uh, about you know all of these different things, it's 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 baked into it. Whether it be a website or podcast like mine, whether it be a fly fishing brand, whether it be an organization that promotes fly fishing, like Trout Unlimited, uh, you know you are going to get as much conservation as you are going to get um, uh, fly fishing, which I think is is good and it's important. And I don't I don't think it is inherently preachy. It can be. Um, and, and that's where I would actually go back and say, you know, if you were bothered and you stuck around, but you were still bothered by me bringing religion into it, um, I feel like I get preached at a lot more when I'm on social media, uh, just reading about conservation and listening to about uh, uh, things about conservation than I do when I am uh, uh, standing up there on a Sunday morning. 
Anyway, but that's not what we're talking about today. So why concentric circles of conservation? Concentric circles of conservation. This is because uh, things start locally and then they expand outward. And that is very natural. Uh, another uh, a term that's used with this is the idea of subsidiarity, that there's the most responsibility in the smallest circle. So what does that mean? That means that you are uh, practicing good uh, angling practices when you are fishing on your own. So you are being a good conservationist when you abide by all local, state, and federal regulations and using your intuition, discernment, and best judgment, you are actually applying those perhaps more conservatively than you should. So uh, places in Maine, I know you are able to take six brook trout a day or something to that effect. But there's some places where it's just not a good idea, uh, especially some places where they may potentially be sea run brook trout. Yes, they are. You, you may legally be able to take it, but better conservation practices would say, you know what, if I want fish, I'll go fish somewhere where the population is a little bit more robust, or maybe they stock fish, or maybe I just take one wild fish, but I'm going to leave what I could rightfully claim as my creel, and I'm going to leave that to swim uh, to, to make sure this population stays healthy. So that is the tightest little concentric circle of subsidiarity. It is not taking more fish than you should or not taking fish even if you can. It is making sure that you don't litter. It is making sure that when you 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 park uh, your large vehicle, that you don't uh, create giant ruts on the side of the road. It's looking at your home and your energy consumption and all of those things. And those are small. And there might not be a one-to-one -one, uh, impact on the he the health of your local trout stream. But because we understand that you know my suburban home has an impact on the woods that are around it, that ultimately has an impact in the greater area. And because there's little streams that flow just to uh, really either side of my house, that all that stuff is going to have an impact on what happens downstream in the in the rivers that they flow into. Taking care of my own backyard is my first priority. And if I don't do that, what does that say about my other initiatives? And we should have both of those things. So the next level, the next concentric circle outward, I would say is where you fish. How do you manage that? How do you take care of that? Uh, something that I'm not great at, but something I try to do, whether I'm hunting, fishing, hiking, is bring a a quote-unquote single-use plastic bag. Talk about propaganda. Calling something a single-use plastic bag is is absolutely ridiculous. What's a single-use plastic bag are these wicked cheap uh, paper bags that they make me try to cram all my groceries into that end up tearing and have no second use because they immediately go into the recycling bin, and then who knows if they actually get recycled. But that's neither here nor there. A plastic bag from Walmart or from the grocery store has a long, long life in my house. Once you have children, you understand this. But I always try to cram one in my pocket or in my pack or in my vest or in my bag. So when I'm out, I can pick up either my own trash, trash that I come across, or, you know, it's amazing. I was, I was out doing some scouting for, for duck season a couple of weeks ago and the water was super low and the amount of garbage that I found embedded in the mud. And I mean, I saw ducks all over the place. I could have, I could have shot geese, but of course, you know, hundreds of ducks flying overhead, not one goose. So I spent my time digging up old shotgun shells that people left behind and, and other trash that had been embedded in the mud, just throw it in that trash bag and get rid of it. Now that's something small, but that's something. I mean, that is much more important than retweeting or angrily commenting on an environmental policy by the particular political party that you disagree with. And I'm not saying that I'm some sort of hero, but it was actually something. So doing that, 
or being involved with local conservation efforts. It was really cool. There, the Native Fish Coalition, which is a organization that is relatively small and relatively young compared to some of the other large ones in uh, fly fishing and, and fishing in general, uh, they recently have taken up a few new initiatives here in Massachusetts, and I believe that the state. Uh, president or chapter head or whatever he, he's called um, lives in the town where I work. And so I got to talking to him at a fly fishing show a couple of months ago. And he mentioned that there was a fish counting station uh, that was right by where I drop off mail for work all the time. So I went and checked it out. And uh, you're able to utilize an app and do some amateur fish counting. And that data is then useful for passing on to the, the, the state as they monitor fish that are moving uh, up these smaller feeder creeks out of a larger river out of the ocean. Now, is again, is that something that uh, by me doing that for five minutes or 10 minutes, does that earn me some sort of medal? No, but it's better than nothing. And it's kind of cool. Those are things you can do with your local conservation organizations, your local trout unlimited chapter, and you're able to have that sort of impact on the streams and on the watersheds and on the environment where you are primarily recreating. And if not recreating there, that you're at least driving around. I know that there are streams that are all around where I live where I don't fish, but it makes me happy to know that they are pretty. It makes me happy to know that they are healthy and it makes me, you know, confident that if that continues to happen, that one day places where trout used to swim or fallfish used to swim or whatever species used to swim there before they became over farmed and over industrialized may very well come back. And you're beginning to see that. And that's good. You know, what happens in the main stem is going to be impacted by what happens in the uh, tributaries, which is going to be impacted by what happens in the feeder creeks. And so, you know, picking up that little bit of trash, um, it, it really has a big impact on the way that people perceive those those watersheds. So that there, there's as much value in that as there is in installing some sort of artificial uh, bank to shore up for erosion, or in putting in some sort of uh, gravel bed to to facilitate and promote uh, spawning of of, of salmonids. Those all matter. Uh, every one of them does. And so that's the next circle out. So you have yourself in your own backyard. Then you have your local area. And then think about things from a regional perspective. For most of us, we don't live on the shores of a Blue River trout stream. We, we don't live in, in a place where we can turn around and be on that premier destination. But that doesn't mean that you can't take opportunities to go and help those places out. Now, that very well may look like what I was talking about before as far as just bringing a trash bag along. But what it could mean is meeting up with a bunch of people you don't know and doing a little bit of hard work, uh, getting your rolling up your sleeves, driving that two hours that you usually drive to be there wicked early in the morning so that you can be the first one through these holes. And and instead of, of fishing, you are actually working. You are rolling boulders after they've been dropped off by a dump truck. You are pouring in, in bags of, of compound to shore up uh, sinkholes. These are things that you know, they need people to do. And if you complain about taxes, then as a volunteer, this is one way to, to put your money where your mouth is, because it's, it's not just that they can find somebody that works for the state to come and do it, or the state's going to necessarily contract out a local conservation organization to come and do it. They might not get around to it if you don't do it. And the fact of the matter is, is that if, if you are a squeaky wheel, there's money to be had, money that sits there, money that can go into any number of projects, um, but it's waiting there as grants that's going to either disappear or more often than not roll over into the 
the next year. And instead of being used for something dumb, you can use it for something that you think is valuable by being that squeaky wheel that gets a project rolling in a local area. Uh, so often, and, and this is something that, that I, I learned firsthand from working with conservation organizations, whether it be excavating companies, um, you know, quarries, whether it be, uh, uh, you know, lumber, you know, mills, people are willing to not only donate resources, but donate time and even manpower to help with conservation projects because they're able to use it for some beneficial purpose for their business, whether it be advertising or whether it be a write-off or something like that. And I think that the, the last piece for the regional aspect of it, that third circle out, is uh, just awareness. Now, I'm, I'm down on the idea of, quote, raising awareness. And really, at the end of the day, I guess that's kind of what I'm doing in this podcast. But you know, if if all you do is link to this podcast and don't go out and do something about it, then I think that's more of the problem than than this. But maybe that's hypocritical. Anyway, um, but being aware of what's going on, uh, know what's happening in your backyard. Uh, I mention frequently that I uh, consistently peruse the National Park Service apps news function. Some of it's to see, you know, who got eaten by a bear, but a lot of it is just to find out what's going on in New England and the Mid-Atlantic, places where I have lived, places where I have fished, and just kind of know what's going on. Know when there has been a problem, when there has been a, you know, a significant flood that's impacted the stream, and just pay attention to it. It's it's interesting. Know when there's conservation projects that are happening. Some of the content that I get from Casting Across, I feel like is really fun to share, is stuff I just come across as I'm you know, checking in on seeing what's going on in these parks and these forests in these areas where I have fished, where there's I've camped, there's where I have, have hiked and lived. And just being aware of what's going on, I think is valuable. And you're able to talk about it, you're able to potentially help. And, uh, you know, the next time you go to use that resource, you can be cognizant of what's going on. But that goes out to this much bigger the largest concentric circle, which truly the largest one would be global. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, we think about our, our country and, you know, where we, where we go, uh, whether it be uh, up into Canada, whether it be, you know, up say a lot of guys that go to Iceland, I mean, that's still kind of where we are, but to know what's going on on a grander scale and understand all of the different, uh, facets of it, I think is really important by and large. Most of the conservation issues that come across the wire are pretty cut and dry. I mean, the Bristol Bray Pebble Mine thing is a pretty cut and dry issue. That being said, there's there are there's there is nuance. Um, it's not like people are caricatures of oil barons who simply want to rape the land. Full stop. They might be being portrayed that way, and they might be acting in a way that would would lead someone to assume that of them. But there's more going on, and to understand that is about understanding what's happening on both sides of the aisle. There, the, the aisle might be a very clearly drawn line that you don't want to cross, but you want to understand because it's ultimately people that you're talking about. Um, I can say the, the exact same thing for, for a couple of conservation projects and initiatives that, that I was acutely aware of when I lived in Pennsylvania, where it was it was landowners that had every right to do what they were doing, but it was not within the particular plan and vision that a Trout Unlimited chapter uh, or the, the Department of, of Environmental Protection wanted for a stream. And so there was conflict, but it wasn't like what the person was doing was wrong. 
it was just not not exactly how the other organizations wanted things to happen. And so inevitably what happens, uh, the anglers take the side of the DEP. They take the side of the conservation organization because it does get framed as, you know, this this landowner is doing whatever they want and they don't care about anybody else. But we have to find a good balance here. Uh, we, we, we don't know how good we have it in the United States as far as land access and water access and public lands. And so when we do get a story about a landowner that restricts access or decides to make a property improvement that, that will benefit them, whether it be for their own recreation or whether it be for the agricultural use or some other sort of land use, then it comes across as incredibly selfish. They might not even be cutting off access. But they might be tempor temporarily restricting it, or they might simply, as in this case that I mentioned earlier, they might be telling the DEP, no, we're not going to let you continue this project on my property because I'm doing something else on my property. Now, these are things where you're welcome to have an opinion on. You are, I mean, I'm certainly not going to take that away from anybody, but I think it's important to be aware that whether it be small scale or whether it be large scale, that there's a lot going on that we need to be aware of and that what you get on a 10 second story on Instagram about how bad something is, although that might be true, there's always more and there's always something else worth understanding. And that's, that is essential in having those conversations and having, in, in having some sort of compromise. Because if legally somebody could just take away your access to the water and not care that you're going, going to be a good steward of it, not care that you have been using that water for, for generations, not care that you are actually going to be improving that water by practicing catch and release, picking up trash, but they just say, it's mine. Nope. You can't have it. And cutting you off, that would not make you very happy. And so to go in and tell somebody, nope, this is, this is a conservation issue as if there's, you know, some sort of special capital C capital I, uh, uh designation that goes with that, that that's just as, as insensitive and that's just as, um, as authoritarian and really totalitarian. If you, if you think about it to say this has to do with conservation as if that is the, the most important thing. And so you have no say, even though it is your land that you paid for that the state and the federal government acknowledges. So a little soapboxy, but, uh, these are things worth knowing about. Especially if you contribute money towards uh, political parties, towards conservation organizations, towards initiatives, know what's going on. Know what your money is being used for. Know what that sticker that you decided to throw on the back of your vehicle or that uh, retweet or that hashtag that you are using. Know everything that it represents. And you might still end up in the same place. But you might be the say, the voice of reason, the voice of sanity, the voice of compromise, and not in compromise of morals, but in, in trying to find common ground uh, as you as as you are found in between uh, two two parties. Um, being a peacemaker is a very good thing, and you can stand strong for your convictions and firm for your convictions, and be a peacemaker. And you can do that for global issues as they're being talked about on social media, or if you have opportunity to be in some sort of summit or something like that. You can do it with the regional issues by actually being boots on the ground when you are called upon. You can do that locally on the streams that you fish on a, on a recurring basis. And you can absolutely do that in a very prominent and very consistent way as you think about what you are doing in your person and your own backyard. So concentric circles of conservation, each one has an impact, but the most impact is going to be had by you and what you do with where you are where you most often find yourself.
Questions, comments, accusations on this complete difference of opinion? I'd love to hear that. Matthew at castingacross.com. I don't say I'd love to hear that. Like, I, I don't imagine that you have it. I'd, be, I'd actually legitimately like to have that conversation with you. So Matthew at castingacross.com. I will read and I will get back to you as long as you don't end up in the spam folder. I can't control that. This week on castingacross.com, the first article is called The Smiling Trout. This has to do with a body part of mine falling out in a body of water and uh, what happens because of that. Well, some of that is is postulation, but everything up to that postulation is completely 100% true. Trust me, I have the medical bills to prove it. Wednesday's article was a great article, and I got a lot of people reading it, which is it just makes me happy because I think it's something very important. It was called um, Be a Better Bad Caster. Be a Better bad caster. Now, what does that mean? Why do you want to be a better bad caster? Um, I learned, and I tell the story about how I learned this, that uh, I didn't know how to cast as well as I could cast until I learned how to cast how I shouldn't cast. So this is basically the opposite of that maxim of, you know, how to, how to, uh, people at the treasury learn to figure out what counterfeit bills are, that they only learn how to know what is on a real bill. And instead of looking at the counterfeits, look at what's real. So anytime anything else comes across the, the desk that's different from that, they know it's wrong. They don't even know why it's wrong. They know it's wrong. This is the opposite of that. This is if you know how to throw a tailing loop, if you know how to throw a cast that dog ears hard to the right as it lays down, if you know how to throw a really open loop um, and and not have line speed, those permutations and countless others, once you're able to figure that out, then you're able to diagnose the problems in your own cast, where you're making your application of power that's wrong, how you're moving your wrist, your elbow, your hips, your shoulder, all of those things. It, it takes time and it takes work and it takes effort. But if you're wanting a little bit more distance, a little bit more accuracy and the line speed that require, that is required to make those things happen, then knowing how to cast poorly is, is ultimately going to make you a better caster. And so I talk a little bit about that in this article. That's definitely something that's worth like a video or something like that, but that requires technology that I am not super comfortable with. This week's recommendation on the podcast is that you head over to nativefishcoalition.org nativefishcoalition.org. So as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, they're a five-year-old established in 2017 conservation organization, and they are all about native fish. So this is not trout and trout only. In fact, there's places where they'll say, we don't want trout to be here. Now that's not going to be their response to every stream that has trout in it that are, are non-native. I mean, they are not the enemy of the brown trout, but they are advocates for local fish. Um, and they they do work in, let me read real quick, Alabama, Connecticut, Georgia, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Vermont, and West Virginia. So as you can imagine, a lot of those states are going to be going to have some trout water that they're very, very interested in, especially states like um, South Carolina and, uh, and Georgia. These are states that, that the trout need uh, advocates for native fish, not just fish, because there's a lot of places where a lot of fish will be able to, trout will be able to survive, but brook trout particularly strains of brook trout that are native to that region, they need advocates. But really cool organization. I've had a number of conversations with them just casually at, uh, at fly fishing shows over the years, and uh, they do they do cool stuff, and it's definitely worth checking out. So I will put a link to the Native Fish Coalition on this podcast's show notes over at castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. 
Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and then rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.